Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... All scams work by targeting human weakness in one sort or another, human vulnerability, and we all have weaknesses. Most scams that we're familiar with target greed or or fear. This one's targeting fear of authority... New South Wales Police reported today that three virtual kidnappings had occurred in this month in the state. These vicious crimes are aimed at Chinese students, usually to extort money from their families. We find out more. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. But first... With a looming ground offensive expected from the Israeli Defence Force following Hamas's violent assault that's killed over a 1,000 people in Israel, there's uncertainty about what we can expect in the Middle East. Stephen Hill asked former MP for Wentworth and former Australian Ambassador to Israel Dave Sharma how this latest conflict is going to affect the future relations between Israel and the Palestinian people. Absolutely. They've altered in ways we don't yet know the whole landscape of the Middle East. You've got to remember, Israel has never lost this number of civilian lives on a single day since the Holocaust. Even when Israel fought wars, the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, not this many people were killed in a single day. And in those wars, it was predominantly military. This has reached deeply into the heart of civilian life in Israel. There's over 1,300 killed, as you said, but also... We think about 199 people who've been taken hostage, and this is young people, children, elderly, grandparents, people with health issues. I mean, it's a really shocking incident. What it means is that Israel is not going to go back to a situation where it's got this terrorist group committed to its destruction sitting just across its border. United States President Joe Biden is going to be visiting Israel uh, this Wednesday. It was meant to be at a summit with the King of Jordan, the President of Egypt and the Palestinian Authority, but this was cancelled following an explosion at the uh, Al Ali Baptist Hospital. Do you, what sort of role do you see the US and Biden playing in the, the, the coming conflict? Look, I think they've got a very important role to play, and I must say that the Biden administration has really stepped up and taken this very seriously but also the fact that the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was there over the weekend as was the U.S. Secretary of Defence. What this is all designed to do is is firstly to reassure Israel that the U.S. has its back diplomatically and militarily, but as importantly to discourage and deter other actors who might seek to take advantage of this situation. And so those are groups like Hezbollah, the terrorist group which controls a large part of southern Lebanon and potentially also Iran, which has close links to Hezbollah and also Hamas, and militant terrorist groups in Palestinian West Bank that don't fall under the authority of the Palestinian Authority and groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So, so following the attack, um, the Israel government has ordered a mass evacuation of over a million Palestinians from northern Gaza as it plans to target the military infrastructure of Hamas. Now, with Egypt closing its borders, logistically, how will a humanitarian corridor be established that you know, deals with this onrush of displaced people? I think that's the real issue, and it's one that I know 
the United States and others have been working on. What, what Israel has ordered is civilians to evacuate the north of Gaza, moving to the south of Gaza. The, the roads are open. Hamas is discouraging and in some instances trying to prevent those civilians from leaving, but many of them are trying to do so. And the United States is also working with Egypt. Gaza shares a border with Egypt, which is open at times, but closed at others. The United States is encouraging Egypt to open that border to allow civilians to leave, but also, quite importantly, to allow assistance to come in food, shelter, clothing, water, uh, which is all stockpiled at the moment. There's an Egyptian town called El Arish, which is just across from Gaza. The US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, in a statement has talked about uh, working in collaboration with Israel to conduct operations in a way that minimises civilian casualties and enables humanitarian assistance to flow to the civilians of Gaza. How confident are you that the IDF will ensure that the targets are focused only on the individuals that threaten the security of the Israel Strait and not upon the large majority of innocent civilians? I'd say I don't think Israel's defence forces have any interest in causing civilian casualties their record of adherence to what we call the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law, which is designed to protect and minimise the harm to civilians in a time of war, is high. But that said, it's, it's a very difficult operational field, and you've got to remember that Hamas has intentionally put things like munitions dumps, rocket silos, military headquarters under civilian facilities, under things like schools and hospitals and apartment buildings. And Hamas is also trying to ensure the civilian population doesn't leave, that it can be retained as human shield. Do you see this um, impacting on the, the geopolitics in the Middle East? You mentioned that there's the risk of Hezbollah opportunistically targeting Israel from the north. And you've also got a whole range of other actors that potentially could lead to instability in other parts of Palestine. And you also have the Abraham Records that um, Israel is trying to negotiate with Saudi Arabia. Look, I think there are going to be a lot of regional repercussions. I think the highest risk one is that Iran and Israel become engaged directly in military conflict. Iran has already warned Israel not to proceed with this offensive against Gaza. On the other side, Israel accuses, with a high degree of justification, Iran of supporting Hamas, potentially being operationally behind these attacks. Uh, so there is a real risk that Iran and Israel become directly involved in, in conflict. Um, but beyond that, I'd say, um, yes, I think it's made the prospect of a Israel-Saudi a diplomatic agreement that much more difficult to reach uh, because the political and diplomatic space is just simply not there now after this. And I'd also say the Russia-Ukraine conflict is quite likely to be impacted by this. Ukraine has been a big user, if you like, of Western munitions in the Western arsenal. Some of that is now being diverted to Israel, which will make it harder to support Ukraine. Former Australian ambassador to Israel and former member for Wentworth, Dave Sharma, speaking there with Stephen Hill. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. The First Nations Clean Energy Network has been at the forefront of getting Indigenous people involved in the energy revolution and to ensure that they will be part of the new energy industry into the future. First Nations people from Canada, who've already been involved in many new clean energy initiatives, have combined with Indigenous people from Australia to help shape an energy outlook that can not only include First Nations people, but be part of the leadership to help meet the nation's energy targets. I spoke with co-chair of the First Nations Clean Energy Network, Karina Nolan, along with Freddie Campbell, Energy and Climate Senior Manager, Indigenous Clean Energy from Canada, who'd just come from their meeting with the Energy Minister, Chris Bowen. 
I asked Karina Nolan to outline the main points of discussion. So we've been talking about three key things, and that's to really improve First Nations access and engagement with the clean energy revolution. So that's engagement and consent to make sure that actually our traditional owners are at the table. There's genuine benefits from some of the renewable energy. The second one is around energy access. And by that, we mean kind of access to clean, affordable, reliable power and ideally projects that can be developed on country that don't actually destroy country but can be sustainable for generations to come. And the third one is really about this kind of building capacity but also resourcing our traditional owner groups but also making sure we're not just responding to proponents who come onto our country but actually we're also making sure that our mob are also proponents. Now, I presume we're talking about solar and wind or are there other things as well that you're talking about? Well, again, we can learn a little bit from our friends um, from Turtle Island and from Canada, but, you know, we've been talking about all things renewable. So, yes, predominantly in Australia it is solar and wind, but it's also hydrogen and also hydro. And Freddie Campbell, would you like to explain a little bit about uh, what's been happening in Canada that, that could be helpful to us? Yeah, of course. So um, we're very grateful to be able to share a bit of a good news story from our country in that Indigenous nations are now the second largest asset owners of renewable energy with thousands of small to large scale clean energy projects. So that is anything from solar, wind, hydro, bioenergy, one geothermal project, um, hydrogen in the works and energy efficiency and housing. I noticed in the the press release you'd you'd mentioned about a a hundred billion renewable energy package. Is that something that has happened in Canada, that you've had this investment? We've had quite a a large amount of investments uh, for Indigenous clean energy projects over the last few decades. Uh, This has been due to a lot of hard work uh, by nations asserting their rights and their sovereignty through renewable energy projects, um, as well as a lot of capacity building with nations, um, coupled with policy advocacy uh, and different blended finance models within the country. So, Karina, what's what's Chris Bowen coming up with then uh, on the table for you? I was just going to add the $100 billion ask is also off the back of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. I think it was around $720 million put aside for First Nations, for tribal communities. So that is one of the things that we did talk with the Minister about today is that, you know, this industry is moving at a very rapid pace and we need, you know, First Nations leadership in order to get the transition done, but it needs to be done with, you know, with justice at the centre of it. There's some pretty big projects that have been talked about. Uh, The one that comes to mind in the Northern Territory is the the Sun Consortium, which has had a bit of a checkered past. What are the chances of Indigenous people getting involved in those sort of projects? Look, we've spent some time talking with those communities and people, I think, are keen for that project, but also are trying to understand what the benefits could look like. And this is one of the things I think we haven't talked about yet is there's a, when it, there's a reset of the relationship with industry that needs to happen in this country. We've seen a lot of damage and destruction to our lands and waters and sacred places. And so we want to make sure that this industry doesn't repeat those mistakes. So that also means that we need to lift the aspirations of our communities about what's possible and what you can ask for and what those benefits could look like. And so it needs to be more than a one-off royalty payment. It needs to include local jobs, potential equity. You know, it also needs to include local power, installation of solar, you know, a whole range of different um, benefits. But for people to understand what they are, we need to be able to look to other examples and, and draw on those and say, well, here's what could be possible. So I think we're trying to be optimistic about that. And I think there's still room to influence the real outcomes of that Sun Cable project. 
And maybe if I could just add on, um, in our experiences, when communities are at the center of the projects, the projects are so much more impactful. Like the spinoff benefits are unimaginable, even for communities when it comes to socioeconomic issues, economy, uh, long-term sustainability of the environment of the lands. And so ensuring that communities are at the heart of projects and have opportunities to have decision-making powers and ownership structures um, really does also de-risk the project in the end and create opportunities for more sustainable uh, and lasting solutions. Co-chair of the First Nations Clean Energy Network, Karina Nolan, and Freddie Campbell, Energy and Climate Senior Manager, Indigenous Clean Energy from Canada, speaking with me there. ASIO Chief Mike Burgess revealed at the Five Eyes Intelligence Summit that his organisation had uncovered intellectual property theft in an act of industrial espionage sanctioned by the Chinese government. This was on an industrial scale that he said he hadn't seen before. Shadow Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity James Patterson was asked about the espionage and went on to discuss how the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance would work together to prevent further industrial espionage. Stephen Samaras has the story. Director General Mike Burgess uh, overnight in California has made some incredibly strong comments about the industrial espionage campaign being waged by the Chinese government uh, against Western interests, including Australia. These are highly significant comments which reflect the seriousness of this issue. Uh, It is not often that the ASIO Director General directly calls out by name China as a perpetrator of national security threats to Australia, but we do know that they are the number one source of espionage and foreign interference risk for Australia, they are the number one source of cyber attacks on Australia, and they are the number one source of industrial espionage threats uh, to Australia and our allies. And this is malign behaviour that should not occur. It's very important that it's called out and it's very important that we respond. The Shadow Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity, James Patterson, went on to condemn the inaction of the Chinese government. Well, the Chinese government might object to this, but it is true. And I think it's important that we are always honest uh, about these issues because that is what is happening. And we shouldn't pretend or lie on behalf of the Chinese government and, and say that it is not behaving in this way when it is. Uh, if it makes it does any damage to the bilateral relationship, well, then the person that, uh, and the party which is responsible for that is the Chinese government. They could stop these attacks on Australia and our allies at any time. But if they continue to choose to do so, well, then that will have implications for the relationship. The heads of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance rarely meet, and as such, this intelligence summit is integral to discussing and preventing future acts of industrial espionage from the Chinese government. Uh, It's very unusual and very significant. Uh, It's often the case that our Five Eyes intelligence partners meet and collaborate and work very closely. It's the oldest and deepest intelligence-sharing partnership in the history of the world. But it's very rare for them to come together publicly and to make public comments like that. And for us to join with Canada and New Zealand and the United Kingdom, as well as the United States, to make this very strong statement about industrial espionage and intellectual property theft uh, is a significant and, I think, welcome development. We need to be honest about this because Australians and Australian businesses need to understand how how serious the threat is. So far, the Prime Minister's upcoming visit to China will not be hampered by this event and that it must be used as an opportunity to confront the Chinese government about this act. Absolutely. The Prime Minister must raise the full raise the full range of issues in the bilateral relationship, including the continued unjustified detention of Yang Hinjun, the ongoing trade sanctions, uh, the industrial espionage and intellectual property theft, the cyber attacks, the foreign interference, the espionage. All of those issues must be raised in a frank and direct way. Shadow Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity, James Patterson, there at Parliament this morning, ending that report by Stephen Samaras and Canberra correspondent Amanda Kopp. 
after a hard day out in the paddock, I like to catch up with a wire. Find out what's going on around this big country. The Wire, bringing you the stories from all around Australia. Virtual kidnappings are a scam that most of us would never have heard of. It's a crime targeted at Chinese students in the main and New South Wales police say that initial contact with the victims is made through a phone call from someone, usually speaking Mandarin and claiming to be a representative from a Chinese authority. The caller then convinces the victim that they've been implicated in a crime in China or that their identity has been stolen and they must pay a fee to avoid legal action, arrest or deportation. Rodney Monk asked Professor of Cybercrime, Cyberwar and Cyber Terror, Professor Richard Buckland from the University of New South Wales, why Chinese students were being targeted. Well, these sorts of crimes happen best in the dark, which is why, why it is great that you and the police are looking into it and, and bringing media attention to it. All scams work by targeting human weakness in one sort or another, human vulnerability, and we all have weaknesses. Most scams that we're familiar with target greed or, or fear. This one's targeting fear of authority and so I think Chinese students out here are potentially isolated from their normal support systems plus they they quite reasonably really want to comply with what their government tells them to do and are probably I would imagine fearful of the police and the, the authorities being displeased with them so that makes just a perfect storm and often they have wealthy parents so here they are isolated no one to turn to no one to get advice fear of authority and, and wealthy parents. Does the Chinese consulate provide any support that you know of? I imagine that they would be very happy to supply or provide support. I imagine they look after their citizens, you know, they take this very seriously. But, of course, this scam relies on you not contacting anyone. This scam, mm. uh, it's a bit like a cult. Once you're in it, the idea is the, the student or the victim, doesn't have to be a student, uh, is told to cut off all contact with everyone and... You know, oh, I guess like in a normal, you know, movie with a ransom, you know, don't contact the authorities, you'll never see your husband again sort of thing. I mean, it's a standard thing that these sort of scammers do to isolate you from possible sources of support. So I imagine they'd be terrified of going to the consulate. It's almost too late once the scam has happened for them to find a way out. I think really what needs to happen is they need to be primed for this before the scam happens, when they're not in a state of fear. And can universities provide support? It's, it's mainly university students that are being targeted. Yeah, though I imagine it's beyond universities. Um, e- everyone can provide support. But as I say, support once the attack has started is, is too late. I think really what the international students need for this sort of attack is to have a confidant or some, a trusted person they can call on in time of crisis from the outset, before anything bad happens. So the sorts of things that unis do, or some unis do, is uh, have buddy systems, have mentoring systems. They may not want to turn to authority, but if they have a trusted friend or just someone across the hall, that they, if they're living in residences that they can chat to, that is the path out of this. And that, of course, is what the attackers are trying to stop, stop them doing. So it has to be a real relationship. But it's, it's humans that can help people out of this, uh, not authorities. Just someone saying, because you're in... The, the thing about this scam, the awfulness of it, and it might seem funny or weird to people not affected by it, is you do it to yourself. You kidnap yourself. You, mm. you, you tie yourself up. You put yourself in a position where, to your parents, it quite plausibly looks like you've been kidnapped, and you're doing it out of fear because someone in authority is telling you to do it. So, you know, turning to someone in authority is... You know, pro- I mean, that's, I'm sure all authorities would want to help Chinese and Australian, but 
I think it's almost too late then. And what can students do to better authenticate the callers? Well, yes, this is... Um, authentication is extremely hard. Uh, in Australia, we've got lots of punishments for impersonating a police officer because it could be it would be very easy, obviously, to dress up as a policeman and go in. You have access instantly, like a skeleton key, to everywhere and make people do anything. So there's enormous punishments here. Uh, so that's a sort of deterrent. How can you authenticate? It's hard. If a policeman knocks on your door and looks scary and there's two of them and they've got guns and radios and the uniform, imagine none of us... That's happened to me, actually. I've never asked for ID, and I'm a cybersecurity expert. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's very hard to do. I think the solution for all of us, not just for Chinese students, but for all of us, because we'll all be targeted to scams in this new world. And the ones that seem silly to us, well, they won't target that weakness. We might not have that weakness, but we'll be scammed one way or another by one of our weaknesses. All of us need to know that if we put in a stressful situation where someone wants us to do something, we should always talk to someone else first. I tell old people, when I, I do training for old people in security, have a have a just an automatic friend that you call up. It could be the person across the road. It could be a bank teller if you're going to the bank to take money out. It could be just a, a neighbour, but just or a son or a daughter. But have some or a friend, someone you call, and that, we should all do that. If we're ever in a bad situation uh, and we're feeling stressed, which is what the attackers want to make us feel, um, because it turns off our, our brain and we can't really think about it very well. If we're ever feeling stressed, we should, no matter what the attackers say. We should talk to someone else about it first, no matter how confident we are. Professor Richard Buckland, Professor of Cybercrime, Cyberwar, Cybersecurity at the School of Computer Science and Engineering, the University of New South Wales, speaking there with Rodney Monk. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, all one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. Australian states and territories have reaffirmed that they will press ahead with plans to action key components of the Uluru Statement from the Heart despite the referendum's major loss on the weekend. Victoria, South Australia and Queensland have already started the process of actioning a voice, treaty and truth. New South Wales is yet to begin a treaty process. Talia Kreft has this story. In the aftermath of the voice to Parliament's bruising rejection, the Australian states and territories are pushing ahead with their own plans to enact three core pillars of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, including truth, treaty and voice. New South Wales has the largest Indigenous population but has not yet begun a treaty process unlike the other states and territories. Harry Hobbs is a constitutional lawyer at the UTS Faculty of Law. He says while Chris Minns has vowed to uphold a $5 million election promise for a treaty process, he has not yet provided a timeline of when it would be actioned. Every single government in Australia, except Western Australia, has committed to talking treaty with Aboriginal nations and Torres Strait Islander nations within their jurisdiction. After the state election earlier this year in March, the new incoming government said that they would also pursue a treaty process. What they said, though, is that they would wait for the national referendum and see what happens from there. So now that the referendum's been run and done, we are waiting to see what the New South Wales government does. They provided $5 million in their budget earlier this year to to start a consultation process, but we've got really no announcements about what that looks like or when it will get started. We can expect some announcements soon, I would imagine. So a modern treaty, a, a treaty between the New South Wales government, for example, and the Wiradjuri people or the Cadigal people or the Bunjilung people up on the north coast of New South Wales, a modern treaty is legally complex. These are big, long documents, 200, 300 pages in length. And so you need to ensure that 
First Nations communities have the resources and the capacity to not just understand the document, but to negotiate fairly. The real challenge we have in Australia is we haven't had a treaty process before. We have no history of negotiating treaties. And so there's no language about it. There are no institutions to ensure and facilitate fair and expeditious negotiations. So the real challenge is building those institutions from the ground up right now. That's what Victoria's been doing over the last eight years. New South Wales hasn't started. Uh, so I'd imagine that it'll take five, ten years, really, before we even start talking about treaty seriously or start talking about negotiations seriously. We've got to do a lot of preliminary work. Aboriginal nations in the state need to uh, be able to be re rebuild themselves and revitalise themselves and be ready to talk treaty. But the government itself also needs to understand what a treaty is or learn what a treaty is and learn what a treaty relationship looks like. This will take time. Uh, ultimately, though, treaties are not legally difficult. They're just politically challenging. So you need to get all these things in place, but that requires political will. And that's, I guess, the, the number one challenge we have in Australia. South Australia delivered the second highest no vote in the country, with 65% of the state rejecting the voice to parliament. However, its government says it remains committed to a state-based voice. Dr Hobbs again. So South Australia legislated earlier this year for a First Nations voice. So there is an Aboriginal voice to the South Australian Parliament uh, set up in legislation. Now, they, there isn't anyone part of that body yet, so they don't have members. What they said is that they will wait until the referendum is run before they will have elections and to uh, have people take their place and really have the body start to be operationalised. But the body has been legislated, so it, sh it does exist in law. Uh, there'll be elections next March um, for members to take up that, that position. The South Australian Voice of Parliament is really strong. It, it gives a really good opportunity for Aboriginal people in South Australia to speak directly to Parliament, speak to members of government, and ensure their interests are heard when decisions are being made about them. Uh, so it's, it's a really um, groundbreaking institution, which I think a lot of states and territories can follow when they want to start to develop similar institutions. Of course, the national referendum failed, so there is no constitutionally entrenched voice to Parliament um, in a, in, at the Commonwealth level. There won't be. But of course, there could be a legislative body like there is in South Australia. Victoria is the furthest ahead, having actioned three parts of the statement and having established a voice to parliament and a Uruk Justice Commission. It plans to start treaty negotiations at the beginning of next year. Dr Hobbs again. So they've been working over many years, since uh, 2015 actually, to, to start to implement these sort of three key aspirations of Aboriginal Victorians. The first one is the First People's Assembly of Victoria that was established in 2018 after a couple of years of consultation. That functions a little bit like a voice to the parliament, uh, but it's got a more defined role in that it's supposed to be supporting treaty negotiations. So there is an Aboriginal representative body that speaks to government uh, and they are helping to build the institutions that are necessary to have expeditious and fair treaty processes in you know, modern Victoria. Uh, they've also helped to in, in help the government come to the table in... in In spite of an earlier pledge to establish a commission to listen to the truth about Indigenous history. I think it's too early to say exactly what happened. So the government has said um, that they will, uh, they're going to wait a little bit and be guided by what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, 
and say and and, and suggest that they want it, it, before they make any firm decisions. My sense, though, is that it will postpone any federal treaty process. Um, so the, the idea in the earlier statement of the heart was that the voice to Parliament would help to design a Makarata Commission, which would be a national agreement-making and truth-telling commission uh, or truth-telling process that would be developed at a national level. Without a voice to Parliament, they obviously can't... That, that body can't help design that Makarata Commission. Um, so I think that'll be postponed a little bit or delayed. The government has made some preliminary work on the design and development of the Makarata Commission. They've funded the NIAA, the National Indigenous Australians Agency, to develop some preliminary work on it, but we haven't heard anything about what it's going to look like. Again, I imagine that things will slow down a little bit in this space. Talia Kreft there with that report. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.